This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about Quarter. One, Quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours and all from those that know it best. Now I only sponsor products that I use every day and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio. And I know you will too. So if you're interested Head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. Hey guys, it's Brandon and this podcast has been a long time coming. I'm super stoked to have our guest uh, Logan Bartlett on today. Logan is um, managing director and uh, partner at Redpoint Ventures, uh, which is a uh, I believe you guys kind of specialize in Series B, Series C type stuff. Um, at least that's what that's what you specialize in. And so we're going to uh, spend a lot of time discussing the venture space, 
uh, the tech space, both public and private, and kind of break down what's happening in the public markets and what's what's transpiring kind of behind the scenes in the private markets. Um, so Logan, thanks again. This has been, like I said, I feel like I've, I've, I've spammed your inbox like once a month for the last six or seven months. <laughs> no, I, I committed to doing it. And then I, uh, I, I uh, was intermittent in, in figuring out exactly when we were going to do this. So I'm glad to, uh, to finally make it happen. Yeah. So where are you right now? You said you were traveling. Yeah, I'm actually uh, in Miami. Uh, it is, uh, I don't know when we're, when we're going to run this, but it's Miami Tech Week this week. And uh, I, you know, I feel like you're, you're, uh, most people are on one of two sides with their relationship with Miami. They're either like 100% in and have been red-pilled by it or uh, 100% out. And they don't really get what the whole thing is. And I'm definitely closer. I live in New York, but I'm closer to a, uh, an advocate for the ecosystem. I mean, it has its flaws like any other ecosystem, but I, I yep. spent like six months down here during COVID. And so, um, yeah, it, 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 I felt like uh, I, I owed it to the people putting it on to come down and sort of support the ecosystem down here. I mean, it's hard not to enjoy the weather down in Miami. Yeah, that's it's right. Like... That's right. Although it's starting to get a little hot. But I, I will say, you know, for the most part, if you catch it October to April, mm -hmm. uh, you should be in pretty good shape. It's, it's kind of hard to beat. And then it gets hot and rainy for a little while. And then, you know, the other eight months of the year, it's amazing. Yeah, I was doing some background research in kind of prep for this conversation. And one of the, one of the big things I noticed was you went from, you know, battery investments or, you know, battery ventures to Redpoint and both firms are, you know, really well-known. I mean, I guess they, you know, each, each, each are kind of like a brand name at this point. Um, walk us through kind of your decision to go from battery to Redpoint and, 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 and then walk us through your role at Redpoint today. Yeah, sure. So, so uh, I was actually turned down. I interviewed for an associate job at both in 2012 or 2013, and uh, I was turned down by Redpoint and uh, and Battery. Battery hired me. So funny enough, uh, I originally connected with both around the same time. Um, I had an amazing whatever, six year run at battery, uh, investing mostly in software companies. And so, uh, that was a good time from 2014 to 2020 to be doing that. And so, uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. I mean, battery is a, uh, fantastic group of people, fantastic, uh, investment, um, powerhouse, I would say, uh, just so consistent in the returns that they deliver to limited partners, right? Fund in and fund out. They're like consistently top quartile. And uh, yeah, I, I'm still close with a lot of people there. And I sort of owe, I mean, a very literal sense, Redpoint wouldn't hire me in 2013. And then uh, whatever, seven years later, Battery uh, or Redpoint did hire me. And the only thing that really changed in between the two was, uh, was my experience at Battery. Um, mm -hmm. Ultimately, Battery is... What Battery does is it's one big fund that does a bunch of different things, a bunch of different products. And so it's early stage venture, it's late stage venture, it's growth equity, it's uh, private equity. Um, they'll sometimes buy in IPOs. Uh, it's a bunch of different um, products under a single fund. And so it's kind of hard to bucket the, the group into any specific thing other than they're just really good at making money, right? And really good at consistently deliver, delivering returns. Um, I felt that I was always kind of focused on venture specifically. And for the most part, post-product market fit, um, which is still what I do today. And it felt like the world was going to become increasingly specialized in a meaningful way. It felt like um, this was, you know, 2019 now, the middle of 2019, kind of pre-COVID. And I think all these things now are, are somewhat self-evident that, um, you, you know, I mean, the asset class has just absolutely ballooned over the course of the last, uh, the last two and a half years, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, it felt like um, 
that there was an opportunity to specialize and double down uh, with folks that only focused on venture and woke up every day kind of thinking about that. And um, and so Redpoint ended up being a great fit. I, I had known them for whatever, eight years or seven years at that point. And uh, kind of going through a little bit on the growth fund where I play uh, or where I spend my time, um, they were going through a little bit of a um, generational transition in part. And so there was a nice opportunity for for me to come in and have an outsized influence um, pretty quickly. And so it was just a bunch of things that uh, that lined up at the exact right time. And uh, I was happy, happy I did it when I did. So I signed up in 20, uh, December 2019. And, uh, and as you'd imagine, those next, I think we've kind of gone through, I mean, the last two years have seen more change than probably the previous six in my yeah. time in venture. And so it was uh, it was serendipitous time to get on board because you know I, I I got to help steer the ship a little bit on what direction we were going to head as a fund, which um, has been fun. What made Battery so successful? Right, you mentioned the consistency, you know, consistency of their returns, or just the fact that they've been kind of in the top quartile. Um, I I would assume that some of that is just kind of this feedback loop of you have a few good deals and then you become known as the firm that makes a few good deals. And so your deal flow quality goes up exponentially. Um, but were there anything um, intrinsically about the business, whether it was how people researched, like what they looked at in companies that that distinguished them besides just deal flow? Because again, I'm, 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 I'm coming from a public market dipping toes into venture. So I do not know this 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 space. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, so I would say yes. I, I mean, there is that feedback loop. Like venture is a weird asset class where it's not a linear distribution of returns, and mm -hmm. so there's kind of stair step function of of uh, you know elements of compounding. Hey, you've been in good companies, and therefore you you uh, will see better companies uh, going forward. And entrepreneurs want to work with you because of your experience, and that's definitely true. But um, I would say. Uh, I would say Redpoint probably benefits from that a little bit uh, incrementally more because it's solely venture, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's something that we get a halo effect from of having been associated with, you know, Snowflake and Twilio and HashiCorp and DraftKings and um, whatever, uh, all the Zendesk and all, all these other amazing companies that we were fortunate enough to be investors in. I think, honestly, the, uh, the battery team is just really, really good at investing, right? And that sort of sounds, I mean, I guess in the public markets, like, you know, that there are people like that in general. And in venture, I think everyone's kind of looking for a silver bullet or a, mm -hmm. a placebo of like, hey, it's it's X or it's Y or it's Z that uh, they do really well. And this is like their real differentiated strategy. I think it's just a really smart group of people that train people very well that, um, that have flexibility with their limited partners to be able to move in a bunch of different directions. Like for the most mm -hmm. part, if I, if I went to our LPs and said, Hey, we're going to do public market investing, they'd be like, okay, uh, that sounds, you know, interesting. Like what's your thesis there? And we could do that. But if I said, Hey, I'm going to do, um, uh, buyouts in Europe, uh, for companies that are like growing at 2% and we're going to put a bunch of them together and, uh, get to scale and sell it to a strategic, they would be like, what, like, why is that something that you have core competency in? And, and battery just has this flexibility. It's almost like it's weird to bucket it into any one product because there are a bunch of products underneath it. And so I think mm -hmm. that makes it a little bit weird for LPs and for people from the outside to think of them. Uh, but they have this flexibility of saying, Hey, late stage venture is crazy right now. Let's go focus on 
um, whatever growth equity or, Hey, growth equity is kind of wild right now. It seems like there's an opportunity for early stage venture or, mm -hmm. and it's not, it's not binary of, Hey, we're going to do this or that, but to some extent they get to make decisions across a, um, across the spectrum of allocation of dollars and time of where they want to be. And, uh, it just works really well. And they have great continuity at the top from a leadership standpoint. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great, I, I have nothing but amazing things to say about my time there and all the people over there. Yeah. It sounds, I mean, it sounds like a fun, fun way to express different viewpoints about markets and, and ideas. And it also brings up this idea of the chicken and the egg problem where like to get to where battery is or red point, like you have to have these really good investments, but to, you know, to make these really good investments, you have to be able to find them. And it's almost like this kind of chicken, like how do you find the great investments to become that firm where you, where it's easier to find great investments and yada, yada, yada. Cause you can't just run like a screen, like you can in public markets. Yeah, no, totally. It's a hundred percent. And I'm happy to talk about that now or, or, or later, but uh, there are a lot of elements that um, I think increasingly you need to public markets have, uh, I mean, everyone's kind of operating on a level playing field from an opportunity to buy plus or minus, right? And prices mm -hmm. are kind of consensus based, uh, where you know, if you want to go out and start your own hedge fund, and you can convince people to give you money, you'll have um, access to buying uh, into these companies the same way that whatever, uh, Tiger or, or um, KOTU or whoever it is do, right? Right. Um, I would say in the private markets, that's not the case. One, the prices aren't consensus-based. The prices are kind of what the entrepreneur and one party, for the most part, agree to, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly you take in feedback from the market. But um, And then also... Uh, access is a uh, is a difficult thing in general, and so I think the industry has gone through a pretty um, a pretty seismic shift over the last couple of years in terms of access, in terms of what entrepreneurs are looking for, in terms of the uh, the amount of specialization that exists in the industry. I compare it to you know in the in the '90s and in 2000s, we were kind of in the broadcast television days where you were appealing to as broad a group as possible, uh, right. but maybe not as deeply. And uh, then we sort of went through this period where MTV and CNN and ESPN and Fox News and MSNBC and all these things came out where there are these specialized products and you had groups like, you know, Andreessen building out their growth fund and uh, you had you had Rivet focusing on only fintech and you had um, the, the proliferation of seed funds and opportunity funds and all that stuff kind of happen. And there was, there was specialization, but it wasn't so specialized and so personalized to every entrepreneur. And now we live in this world of uh, like streaming wars or TikTok where like everything is specialized to an individual entrepreneur. And so cutting through the noise and appealing to an individual uh, uh, entrepreneur is, it's hard, right? There's so many funds out there. And so, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, there's, there's a handful of brands that benefit from having been around for a long time. But at the end of the day, if you're not thought of for something, if you're still sort of stuck in that uh, broadcast television days, um, you're going to get passed by a bunch of specialists that are only waking up every day thinking about, you know, early stage fintech or whatever it is. Right. And so I think it's on us, it's on battery, it's on all the, the kind of blue chip funds that have been around for a long time to continue to evolve and continue to stand for something so that at, that access thing doesn't go away. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, maybe, maybe you roll it out and, and on a, on a long enough time horizon, you just have these, you know, we'll call them conglomerates in air quotes that have a bunch of specialized 
little vehicles inside of a fund, right? So you've got the early fintech fund, you've got the you know crypto fund, you've got the consumer tech fund, and then it's just wrapped up in this big you know generalist battery brand, right? Investment. Yeah. No, brand. and every other, I mean, almost every other asset class has followed that trend, and almost mm-hmm. every other service provider business, right? The the investment banks have gone down that path. The real estate agents, you know, the the Hollywood agents, right? In addition to private equity and hedge funds and all, all that stuff, and so it kind of raises the question of, uh, I it'll be interesting to see what world specialization ends up playing, and how much does there's kind of a tension that exists. I, uh, I use the analogy of like the before the at sign or after the at sign on an email address, right? And how much does the after the at sign matter? How much does redpoint.com matter versus Logan matter? And it's a balance, but you certainly see firms that are pushing the outer end of like this conglomerate specialization approach. And I think that's good, right? Maybe it's the inevitable state of the industry and what Andreessen specifically is doing. Uh, and, uh, but I, I think that there's a world for um, you know, boutique specialization, right? At the end of the day, these things tend to gravitate to barbells is kind of the gravitational pull that that these these have. And so um, there will always be, I think, room for, for specialists as well. And mm-hmm. there will certainly be specialists under conglomerates, but I think there'll be independent specialists, but we'll see. I mean, who knows? The, the, I don't presuppose anything after the last two years, um, all the amount of change that's happened. And, uh, and it feels like we're kind of at a steady state a bit right now, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Speaking of steady state, it seems like a steady state of decline in public markets, uh, which, you know, for the long-term investors, actually not a bad thing, but I loved your kind of pitch deck or presentation you gave, I think it was in late March about the state of the current you know, technology investment market. And um, I would love to kind of spend the bulk of the time really kind of diving into that because it does cater to what public investors are, are, are kind of going through. So give us a sense of what you're seeing in the software landscape, technology landscape, just in terms of what this drawdown means in relation to 0809 and kind of the COVID drawdowns and all that. Yeah, sure. And, and I, um, I, I use software one, because I focus on software two, I think it's, um, there's the most consistency of, of business model and, uh, profitability and, and number of data points, right? I don't know. It's yep. something like 75 public software companies. And so I think you can extrapolate some of these things uh, for, you know, internet businesses or high growth uh, healthcare companies or whatever, right? This is sort of the the um, the opinions of um, related to software, but I think there's an extrapolation um, mm-hmm. that, that exists to other industries as well. Uh, it's been interesting. I um, there was certainly a period of exuberance that happened uh, from call it May 2020, June 2020 ish uh, to um, January of this year, right? And it, it, it's funny. It's something that I spent a lot of time explaining to or talking to entrepreneurs about um, who don't fully appreciate how everything ultimately trickles down from the public markets, right? But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, everything does kind of trickle down from the public markets, and there's macro considerations that end up uh, impacting, you know, early stage entrepreneurs, right? And I think that's a weird thing to internalize if you're a founder of a seed series A company, that to some extent, like what happens with interest rates very well could 
flow through to your uh, business, not on a micro level, right? In terms of uh, in terms of like your customers and all that stuff, that that's always certainly been the case. But yeah. at a uh, ability to raise capital and be funded and, and and all of that stuff. And so I think what we saw over the course of the last two years is um, obviously you know there's a handful of trends that happen that all kind of um, happened at once that led to this exuberance, right? And mm-hmm. it was it really started in the public markets as as these things often do, where we had uh, low interest rates, right? It, it, um, we had the COVID impact of what was happening from all other asset classes were uh, impacted in a meaningful way and software and internet businesses mostly held up. And so there was just kind of a sector inflow that uh, that happened from, you know, whatever retail or, or financial services or whatever it was into uh, technology and software, because those were the durable businesses that were holding up. And then there's there's some other trends that I think have been true and remain true, right, uh, which are just the, the secular, secular trends behind um, uh, some of these things that are happening, be it uh, cloud computing or be it... Um, uh, whatever, like SMB distribution or all, all these things that are kind of happening at a macro level. And then you have the, the stuff that's been true for, for a little while as well, which is uh, private companies um, or companies staying private longer, right? Mm-hmm. And so those are some of the things that were happening in general, the last point being specific to the private markets, but uh, the first three ultimately um, having a big impact on the public markets. And so we saw companies that historically, if you look at the average of what software companies have traded at over the course of the last, you know, whatever, 50 years, it's been eight times forward revenue or something. And you saw that move up to 15, 18, 20. Uh, And so as that happened, um, everyone sort of looked at that and said, oh, wow, these companies that we underwrote to be two, $3 billion businesses are now actually, you know, six, seven, eight, 10 billion. Right. And uh, it's interesting. um, I've lived through some of the like uh, lemming mindset in the private markets over the course of, you know, whatever being in this world for, for, uh, 12 years now. Um, but to see it happen so acutely, uh, during COVID, I think everything was accelerated in a meaningful way where, um, where people were all at home and it really democratized the access, uh, that, that people have where anyone could be anywhere uh, across the globe at, at any point in time. And so you had these, these public markets go up and you had uh, people sitting at home and you had their returns really appreciate. And then you had uh, just this very um, exuberant inflow that uh, that ultimately happened in the late stage private markets. And, um, and so all of that works until it doesn't, right? Like the most money's made at the end of cycles. And so I think for two years, everyone was running pretty hard at like, all right, let's invest, invest as much as we can and let's you know pay whatever the price it takes to get into these companies because, hey, if, it's, if it works, it's gonna be worth 10, 12 billion. So who, who cares if it's 300 or 500 or 800 million valuation, let's just, you know, let's, let's get in, let's make it happen. And um, I mean, that's true for maybe any specific company, uh, mm-hmm. but when everyone's thinking that way, it, uh, it starts to bring down the returns in the asset class and it can't be true in mass. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a really interesting thing to, to happen. Um, so that, that was kind of the last two years. Now, what, uh, obviously with, um, with the impact of, uh, of, you know, the interest rates and what's going on in the, um, 
in the global market with uh, with Russia and Ukraine and and all of that stuff, we've seen a pretty significant drawdown in in tech and uh, software, which was always something of an inevitability. But it's interesting to see it it uh, actually happen in real time, and then it flow through to uh, to the private markets in um, yeah in a little bit of a lag. But it, it's it's happening now, which is uh, I think healthy, right? Um, we were we were sort of in a period of do no wrong for for entrepreneurs and for investors, and so yeah. I think that we we've shifted the pendulum back to a little bit more of equilibrium. I want to go back to that period. We'll call it the, I guess, 2019, you know, call it the COVID, COVID era, where you have this dichotomy. And I want to, I want to really get kind of a boots on the ground opinion, because on one hand, you have companies, like you said, that normally went for eight times next 12 months revenues to, you know, 15, 20 X, um, which from a valuation perspective, right, it kind of pulls forward a lot of the returns and it kind of makes you wonder like, hey, should we invest in this? But at the same time, you have this portfolio construction question and really, the whole point of, 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 of venture is like to make a bunch of bets and, and hopefully one kind of returns the fund and yada, yada, yada. And so if I'm sitting there at the table and I'm a, and I'm a VC and I'm, and I'm debating whether or not to invest in these things, the value investor in me says like, no way I'm paying for, you know, 20 times forward revenue when six months ago, that was eight to 10. But I'm also understanding of that portfolio construction complex where you get the whole idea of like, who cares what price we pay? Because if we're right, it returns our fund. If we're wrong, we only lose our initial investment. So how do you then like debate that internally or within the team of like, how do we make sure that we're being disciplined on price, but also recognizing like we need to lean into the strength of venture capital, which is look, all it takes is one, right? Because that's like very yeah. attractive. Totally. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And this is a, this is a great, um, uh, question and point as you think about venture as an asset class and fund construction in general, like what is our job, right? And at Battery, uh, Battery viewed the job of consistently returning, uh, you know, three plus X to the LPs fund in and fund out at big scale, right? And that led to uh, kind of an asset allocation mindset of should we be playing here or playing there, right? Uh, as a venture fund uh, and only a venture fund at Redpoint, our job to some extent is to uh, not time the market, right? But just to invest in the best companies that come up in the market. And uh, and so, like, if I go to our LPs and say, "Hey, you know, we this is a we're actually going to wait ten years on this fund," they would be like, "What the fuck? Uh, like, that's not what we we need. We want like the exposure to the private markets because uh, I've been in venture for eight years, and I swear every period minus this last whatever four months, and then one period in 2016." everyone said, oh, the market's crazy, like every point along that time. And so if I listen to, uh, you know, the, the gray haired uh, people that were um, that were looking out over the market or the ecosystem, they would have always said, hey, don't, you know, 
slow down, slow your roll. What are you thinking? Like the market's yep. crazy. And if you remember a bunch of the deals that like people, I mean, people forget it now, but like Andreessen Horowitz was really made fun of for, uh, for GitHub, right. When they did that deal and everyone was like, what the fuck are those guys doing? Right. <laughs> yeah. And now it's, you know, in retrospect, it's like, oh, well they, they actually saw something. Right. Or yeah. I remember when we did Stripe, it was like, wait, we're doing what? 500 post we're doing this and it's two kids starting this right and uh and you know it it was certainly true of slack at a billion as well and so you go back and look at some of these like really generational businesses and everyone made fun of them uh for the valuation at the time that um that they happen that they occurred and so it's um it's one of these things that you need to recognize that that's going on and so how do we think about that right well our job is certainly to invest our LP's money, right? Yep. And our job is to do that in as um, in as responsible and prudent of a way as we can over the time period that we tell them we're going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And so we say, hey, you know, our our, our uh, initial investment cycle, which um, which is really where call it 70 percent of the dollars will be deployed, is going to be over a um, you know two to four year period, right? Mm-hmm. And our job is over the course of that two to four year period to uh, to not, hey, is this venture uh, asset class a bubble right now? It's sort of to look very specifically over that period of time and evaluate all the best opportunities that we're able to see and invest in them, right? Mm-hmm. And we can certainly take relative consideration of hey, is this crazy versus everything else we're seeing over the course of the two to four year period? Uh, and, and we definitely internalize that as well as you need the time diversification of it, right? Because maybe now is the best period of investment, uh, that we're going to have during this fun cycle, uh, or maybe it's in six months or maybe it's in 12 months, right? But you, you at least want that time diversification, uh, where you're not deploying the entire fund over a six month period that could work out really well, or it could be like a disaster, right? Yeah. And so we really view our job as being pragmatic deployers of capital to the venture asset class over a two to four year period. And we work our ass off to see all the opportunities we possibly can and be sophisticated about the investment uh, relative risk returns. But at the end of the day, you're right. Our job is not to you know, say, hey, this is uh, 20 versus 2016. This is stupid. And so let's go do real estate. Uh, our job is our LPs want to be indexed to the venture asset class. And so we should deploy capital uh, to that end, right? Mm-hmm. Do you ever find it uh, tempting to kind of use, like, let's say, like, Redpoint is, you know, you mentioned a lot of successful past investments. And how often do you find yourself tempted to say, oh, well, this kind of reminded me of, and then like insert the last really great company you invested in. And like, maybe, maybe that's like an outlier, maybe 90% of them are, you know, not like this, but you say like, look, like maybe this could be this. And that justifies kind of overpaying. And, and, it, and, and, and I guess what I'm getting to is like, at the end of the day, like how much does the price you pay weigh in on that final decision? And it's like, look, like the price is what it is. But at the end of the day, like I have to go with, you know, whether it's something as, as kind of ephemeral as, as, as just my gut feeling about the founders or gut feeling about the product market fit and where I, where I see the company. And like, that's really what I'm trying to kind of understand because from the public markets, it's so easy just to have this like price first mentality. 
because you can kind of code it up in a nice spreadsheet. You can look at annual reports and it's all nice and nice and detailed for you. But in privates, it's a lot different, especially the earlier stages you go down. Yeah. I mean, ultimately the outcomes for the most part where we're playing, where, you know, we have a seed in the early, we have a seed series A team. That's totally separate from me. And we're, we're mostly series B and C and we would ideally do investments in the low hundreds of millions of dollars, right. As sort of mm -hmm. where we're, where we're playing. And for the most part, uh, our returns, any individual investment will be binary in whether or not it was a good one, right? I have yep. never uh, had price as the deciding factor. Now, whatever, I've been I've been doing this in a, a eight-year bull market or whatever it's, uh, I mean, sorry, I've been doing this for eight years during a 12-year bull market or whatever yep. it is. And so easy for me to say right now that price has never been a consideration. But for the most part, I've never had an investment that had I had I done it at 75 versus 125 versus 150 versus 300, that would have determined whether or not it would have met our investment threshold, right? right. And so yep. you can get kind of sloppy in your thinking uh, in that way. And you could say, hey, ultimately it's going to work or it's not. And so let's just, you know, let's just do it, uh, get busy dancing. And I think everyone sort of had that philosophy over the last two years. Everyone's kind of coalesced on it will either be right or wrong. And who cares if I pay you know, a hundred or 500 or a billion, but those numbers start to be very materially like that works. <laughs> if, if all these companies are trading at 25 times forward revenue, right? right. But if they start trading at eight to 10, that starts to break down. And the difference is pretty material between 200 and a billion. And so yeah. I think of it as, uh, I try to be as stringent as I possibly can to, it's really hard to internalize probabilities, right? Because ultimately a lot of these outcomes are going to be binary of whether or not it works or it doesn't. And so I try to be pretty structured in my thinking about the, the distribution of what the potential outcomes can be. Mm -hmm. And so I will say some of the um, investments that have proven to be less successful for me, uh, I think my thought process was, uh, was right. Right. And I think I was very, it just happened to be, listen, if, if something has an 80% chance of failing, but a 20% chance of being a hundred billion dollar company, you do that investment. And you're not sure if you were, do you land in the 80% or, uh, or were you wrong about your probabilities associated with it? And so mm -hmm. it's really hard to know the counterfactual in all these cases. And so all yeah. I can really do is be structured in my thinking and you can certainly, uh, be delusional and think, well, you know, so it is, right? And that sort of goes back to why you think about the fund construct of, you know, if you're if it has a twenty percent chance of being a uh, hundred billion dollar company, you 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 probably want to have five of those or six of those or seven of those in the portfolio to make sure that that actually proves to be the case. And so I'm very structured on the inputs, but um, but ultimately, all we can really do is tweak our mental framework uh, for for future decisions. Right. And we yeah. can't really correct. We're, we're in, when we're in, there's no getting out. Right. Yeah. And so you can't correct the decision. Hey, I was, you know, whatever I was hung over and, and didn't have sleep when I made that decision. And can't so, just hit so I'm going to sell the next day. <laughs> right. And so you can't do that. Like now you're in. And yeah. I would say there's advantages of that where I don't look day to day on our portfolio and need to mark the market what's going on and say, oh gosh, we're now down 50% on what we're doing. And so I can certainly take a longer term view of where we're headed and the public yeah. market machinations don't beat me up in the same way. I will also say, it's nice because I've had some companies that have totally whiffed their first couple of quarters. And, and, you know, if I were given the choice of selling or not at that moment in time with truth serum, I definitely would have. Uh, and it's proven out because, you know, any individual quarter didn't really matter. 
Yeah. Uh, and it was yeah. the, the longer term horizon. And so, yeah, it's something that I think the only way I know to do it is try to be really disciplined about the inputs and, and capture, I capture in a document, like all my thoughts at that time. And we certainly do investment memos internally, but there's kind of the Logan investment memo of maybe what I wouldn't convey, what I don't want out there, even to our team internally, because whatever it's like my own anxieties and stuff about, and we have a great partnership that's very supportive about all that stuff, but what keeps me up at night all the time, I'm not going to document at the risk of, uh, I don't know. I mean, you don't want a founder to know, maybe you were doubting them or whatever it was. Right. And so competitor, like realizing that there might be some sort of like, you know, you just don't want, I don't want that out there, but I keep it for myself. And, uh, and so I try to be, there's a lot of, I mean, if you, if you go and study memory, right, there's a lot of, um, the human memory is very capable of convincing yourself of things that didn't happen. Uh, and so all I can really do is journal and try to be as, uh, as structured around that stuff as I possibly can so that at least I can go back and be like, well, you know, that document's PDF and it says right here, it was saved on, you know, whatever, April 19th, 2022. And so I can't really uh, do anything with that. And, yeah. and uh, so that helps keep me disciplined, but you can really delude yourself into believing a bunch of things that aren't true uh, because of what are they, what is like Annie Duke and all those people call it like uh, deterministic outcoming or something like, because yeah. something happened, therefore that was the only outcome that could have happened. And mm-hmm. so you can certainly convince yourself of that uh, in venture. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of people that have made one single investment that was insanely lucrative, but actually aren't that bright. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a very interesting asset class in general, because all it takes is one getting lucky. And were you lucky or were, you know, did you put yourself in the position to be lucky because of your decision framework, because of your, how hard you worked because of whatever X, Y, Z thing. And it's hard to know which one it was. Yeah, well, it, I love I love the idea of kind of like the luck versus skill, and I always I always go back to Michael Mobison's kind of um, framework where it's like, how can you tell if something's luck or skill based? And 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 the obvious kind of benchmark to that is like, can you lose on purpose? And if you can, then um, you know it's kind of more of like a skill based game. And if you can't lose on purpose, then 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 there's more luck. And I I you know like public markets, I I think venture more to the luck side, like. You could have had, I mean, obviously I guess it's, I guess it's market dependent, but you know, like you said, like, let's look at the last 12 years in this bull market. Like you could have had a chimpanzee with a blindfold throw darts at a list of NASDAQ or S&P 500 companies and like would have done fine. Probably would have been a lot of money managers. Totally. Yeah, no. And it's interesting uh, to know like how much, uh, (laughs) I think a lot of people, uh, again, back to was I right place, right time, 2014 software, like literally it wasn't, Hey, I was prescriptive of, I went across a bunch of different asset classes and was like, Hey, software's eating in the world. And therefore, you know, I'm going to bet my career on software. Right. It was, I went to go work at a boutique investment bank in 2011 that was focused on software. And I sat down day one and didn't know what Salesforce was. And when you're working at a boutique investment bank, like one, it's boutique. So no one uh, knows who you are Two. Uh, I was a junior person, so no one wanted to talk to me. And when you're focusing on software in general, like uh, you're actually not entitled to your own opinion, really. Like to know, um, 
to be investing in point of sale software like Toast, you sort of need to know the history of all point of sale software, right? And so my little <laughs> shortcut at the time was like, study the history of databases, right? And so I could make mm -hmm. these references of, you know, this is kind of like Sybase and Oracle back in, you know, the 80s fighting it out, or this is like PeopleSoft and the takeover of Oracle or whatever. And uh, it was it was actually kind of a hack to shortcut people thinking I knew what I was talking about, right? And I just like read it in a book and they're like, how old is this kid, right? And, right. Uh, but I, I would rattle off all this stuff. But the only reason I did that wasn't because I had this big macro view of where the world was headed. I was like, that was the job. And that was all I knew to uh, stand out, right? And so then, then I enter in 2014 as a software growth investor. And we went on a seven, eight year like tear where multiple appreciation occurred. And yep. it's like, well, I think a lot of people deluded themselves into thinking, oh, well, I'm a generational venture investor, right? Because of right place, right time. And so I'm very cognizant of all the, the fortune and luck that uh, I've, I've had. And I think a lot of people have convinced themselves that like, you know, because you were a software investor during the last eight years or whatever it was that you just so happened to be an amazing, you know, uh, picker when in truth, like, whatever led you there was probably a pretty serendipitous set of events. And certainly there've been smart people that have looked across a bunch of different asset classes and made the decision. But, um, you know, by and large, I would say people just did their job and found their way there. And then the basket of things, like if I did every deal I looked at in 2016, I bet I would be an 8X, 10X career investor or something. You know, if I was just like throwing darts against the wall, very literally your right. chimpanzee example. And so yep. you have to be cognizant of that. Well, the idea of the idea of going back in time to learn about the future, right? So, like, let's take let's take Toast for example, because um, yep. that 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 one is on my watch list of companies to eventually get to and 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 research. Because, like, intuitively, I kind of know the idea. It's like, oh, it's like this niche kind of POS system that totally specializes in restaurants, and like they like they eat, sleep, and breathe serving restaurant owners and making yep. their lives easier. And the idea of going back in time to look at this business that's very you know tech and we'll call it futuristic in air quotes just because of what it's what it's trying to do that to me is the harder exercise and one that i don't do often enough because i think it's i think it's tougher to find like good resources back in time to see the evolution of like certain industries where it's easy to like whip up the toast 10k or it's easy to like YouTube a video of like, oh, here's how Toast is going to innovate over the next 10 years, where it's a lot harder to say, hey, here's where point of sale started. And here's how it's evolved over time, all the ups and downs to where we got today. But I think that that's totally. way more important, right? Because like I, in, in learning about venture, I found this resource from University of California, Berkeley, the, uh, from the Bancroft Library, Paul Bancroft which is, I guess, one of the OGs in venture capital. Yep. And it's just like 70, 80 plus pages of interviews with him about like what they, you know, how they started the venture capital space. Yeah, it's, like, it's an amazing resource, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I know I will say, I mean, imagine all of that happening now, but there's just so much information out there uh, that didn't exist once upon a time, right? Yeah. And so like, I, I there's a book that's come out recently called Power Law, and it's sort of going through the history of venture capital. And 
I, I was kind of pissed when it came out because the guy did such a good job outlining, you know, going back to Arthur Rock and going back mm-hmm. to the history of Kleiner Perkins and going back yep. to the Traitor's Aid and whatever, like Apple and all this stuff. And I had pieced together all of these things myself. And that was kind right. of, I sort of consider myself a student of venture capital to some extent as an asset class. And I was pissed when it came out because it kind of gave everyone else the primer that I spent like, you know, 15 years like figuring out on my own. And it just sort of gave people a shortcut of it. Yeah. And so you go to this like this Berkeley resource or you go read, um, you know, Mike Moritz talking at, or go, go watch the YouTube video, Mike Morris talking at Stanford, right? And there's like a handful of these things that are really impressive to see. And I think that's that continuum of information. Like you you certainly do the history of, of, uh, of some of these industries and all that. But I will say like the continuum of information that exists on a very specific level of toast, right. Um, is super helpful, uh, Mm -hmm. to informing the public markets. And so I think as you've seen, uh, uh, public investors get into private markets. Now we're seeing more and more of private investors get into public markets. And it's interesting because I know a handful of companies that exist in the public markets that uh, I was like, well, that was always a disaster, right? And like no one wanted to do those rounds and whatever. And, And so I knew that versus a handful of companies that I just know have never missed a number in the private markets, right? Mm-hmm. And it's no, knowing that information is pretty powerful. And, it, and eventually there's the market will catch up to that, but there's generally a window of opportunity that I know, hey, that CEO is a sandbagger and he's in his first four quarters of being public, but I just know they're not missing any of those numbers and there's no mm-hmm. possible way the street has caught up to that, right? Yeah. And so it's there is this continuum of information that exists. And so to your toast example, um, you know, to some extent, I think, knowing the history of toast and how it came to be. And I looked at the round, the series a, uh, or we looked at the series a when I was at battery and whatever, 2015 or 2014 or something. And so I know what the business looked like at that point in time. Uh, I think one of the, the failings that often happens is, uh, we probably knew too much about the point of sale industry and how hard it is to gain distribution and uh, just a hand-to-hand combat of these displacement cycles or replacement cycles that need to happen uh, yeah. to get restaurants to throw all this stuff out. And you, it's almost knowing too much in some cases is, uh, can be a detriment as well because you mm-hmm. know where all the bodies are buried. And it's, uh, Battery used to use the analogy of like, it's one thing to be wrong once, it's another thing to be wrong twice. And, uh, and the, the, the story is like, if, you, if you've lost money in a sector in one, at one time, you don't want to uh, pass on the opportunity that's actually gonna get to where it should have gone the second time, right? Yeah. And so like, uh, I know Mike Moritz uh, makes jokes about like, uh, when he originally did the DoorDash investment uh, with Alfred Lynn or whatever, like, hey, this is the next generation of web band. And they were smart and disciplined enough to recognize that like, hey, we were wrong in web band in 2001 or whatever that was, 2000. Uh, but now things are different and we're going to lean into DoorDash, right? Yeah. And so it's, or Instacart, I guess it probably was. Uh, yeah. But it's interesting to uh, to recognize that like, things can be different. And uh, sometimes knowing too much can actually be to your detriment um, mm-hmm. versus ignorance can be bliss in some cases, because ultimately Google was the 20th search engine or whatever it was, right? And ultimately Toast did disrupt restaurant POS. And so sometimes when these things happen, uh, yeah, you know, it can be so generationally transformative of what could go right is more important than what could go wrong. Yeah, and it's almost like finding that balance between having a knowledge base where you know enough 
to understand like the first principles of how an industry works and how a business works in there, but don't know enough to where you lose that, you know, naive optimism that drives the innovation, right? Because that's yeah. like the whole, like you hear, you hear that all the time where it's like, you know, you want some entrepreneurs to on, on some hand be so naive that they kind of don't know how big the problem is that they're going to face. Uh, because if they knew the problem that they were going to face, they might not even attempt to kind of tackle it at first. Um, but then it also it also makes me think of like another another idea of we're moving in to a world like whether it's TikTok and you have so much information being fed to you, like so much real time information. You just look at what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. Like I, I I firmly believe that without Twitter and without social media, like the that that result of this war, whatever happens it would not have turned out the way it has so far had it not been for social media and, and, and the ability for everyone around the West to kind of, you know, coalesce around Ukraine and really, really do a global support. But it makes me wonder if there's like a true competitive advantage in being able to go back far enough as we go further into this like instant information. I need it now. I need to know the latest thing, what's happening at the cutting edge where you have people that take a step back and they learn about an industry, they learn about everything. And like Webvan is a great example. Like I read eBoys about, you know, when Benchmark invested in them. And like, it takes so much courage to read about that story and like understand the history of Webvan and then go ahead and look at a DoorDash or an Instacart and just say like, you know what, I'm going to hold my nose and I'm going to take the plunge. Because like that mental model, you could have easily mapped Webvan right on top of Definitely. any of these kind of delivery services, 15 minute, 30 minute services, and just been an easy no. Yeah, I know, 100%. And that's one of the things I, I actually think, I mean, talking about the benchmark, I think the benchmark guys, uh, I'm friends with a few folks over there, and they do a really good job of, uh, you know, uh, so so Peter Fenton tells the story of coming over from Excel, and Excel very notoriously uh, has the concept of like prepared mind and doing a yes. bunch of work in the industries to be there when lightning strikes and be able to act on it. And it's worked really well for them, you know, uh, notably like, Facebook was a great example of, of them sort of having the prepared mind around social networks and what to look for and all that. And uh, when Fenton left uh, Excel to go over to Benchmark, I think it was Bob Cagle or Bill Gurley or one of the guys sat him down and he said, all right, throw out all that prepared mind bullshit. Like we don't need any of your prescriptive things about the way the world's going to look. You need to... Uh, you need to recognize that you don't know what's going to happen and yeah. just be able to see the, I think Kohler has a, has a quote of like Matt Kohler um, seeing the present clearly. Right. Yeah. And um, I think that is interesting where when I talk to people over on their team about stuff, I'll be like, I, I come from a little bit more of the prepare mind school of stuff. And, uh, and not a hundred percent, if there's a spectrum of like, you know, 0% to a hundred percent, I'm not a hundred percent there, but I'm definitely more of that. And so when I'll talk about an investment, I'll, I'll get into very specifics about like competitive set and, and, uh, what's going on and, um, and XYZ company versus, you know, QRS company. And when I talk to those guys, they'll be like, yeah, so um, the founder's fucking awesome. And I think at a high level, this is going to happen. And um, so seemed like a badass person that was going to like, just will this to happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think to some extent, it's the, it's the mindset of like, uh, 
pre-product market fit investing where you recognize that like, hey, this came from nothing. And so uh, it's all about the founders versus right. post-product market fit investing, which is like, okay, all that stuff was fucking like uh, this art and black magic that I don't really know how that works. And and so now I'm going to go evaluate the playing field. And, uh, and in truth, like both things will ultimately be true, uh, both mm -hmm. the pre and, and post. But it is interesting to talk to people that are just so pre-product market fit uh, investing in what they do. And they're like, yeah. it's the people, stupid. It, like it's a confluence of, you know, the founder and the market opportunity for sure. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, their ability to recruit great people in is going to determine the success or failure of it. And so it can be kind of refreshing or, uh, or funny to talk to people that operate in that world who just think of things so differently, right? And uh, mm -hmm. I'm like wrapped around the axle about X feature on Y company versus Z company. And they're yeah. like, what are you even talking about? Yeah, well, David, David Peril uh, tweeted a quote from Elon Musk about kind of viewing um, decisions and kind of understanding things and, and learning things as like a semantic tree where if you focus on the roots and you know, you've probably already read this, but if you focus on the roots and kind of the, the trunk of the tree, make that your focal point, like learn the big things about whatever you're trying to learn instead of focus on the branches and the leaves. And as a public markets investor, and just kind of as someone that wants to study and invest in businesses for a long time, I greatly struggle with which one do I focus on? Because the trunk is very tantalizing for a couple reasons. One, you can kind of get to a thesis and get to kind of your bet really quickly. It's like huge top-down level, like toast. It's like, hey, I think restaurants are going to love this because it's tailored to them. And there's X amount of restaurants in the country. And I think over time, like toast is going to be able to convert more of those restaurants to what they do because they offer better service to them. And like, boom, like you could say like that, that could be that meta thesis, uh, meta thesis. But there's also that like imposter syndrome where it's like, well, if you stay at that, you know, 30,000 foot view, like, do you not know enough that you need to know? Yeah. to actually understand this business. And that is like that ever kind of grip I have where it's like, how much information do I need to know so I can understand that tree trunk? But then what is the incremental value of deeply understanding each branch and then each leaf on that branch? And I assume venture is way more of a, of a, of a struggle between the trunk versus the leaves because in venture, you can be rewarded so greatly for just knowing the trunk, especially in that pre-seed seed level. Cause like, who cares? There are no leaves really at that point. It's just the founder and the trunk and this big idea. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a hundred percent right. Um, I, I, it's a very, um, it's an astute point about, uh, how much do the details and all these things matter? And it's something I always come back to the framework of like, what would make me, what outcome would make me the most mad if mm -hmm. I was right or wrong. And it's what I always do. If you ever have to make a decision for uh fantasy football, I, I oftentimes will have two quarterbacks on my fantasy football team. Yeah. And, uh, if I'm in the playoffs or the finals or whatever, and, uh, I have two great quarterbacks who I've been, you know, flipping them in and out matchup dependent or whatever. The way right. I always make the decision is like, all right, if one of them ends up better than the other, what will make me the most mad to not have started that person? Right. It's the regret like, minimization framework. Day, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, at the end of the day, all I can internalize, I, I don't want to 
be too deterministic about what the outcome is. Yeah. But what what would make it hardest for me to sleep at night if I didn't make that decision, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, all right, that's sort of my like ground truth and fantasy. And I think there's a bunch of applicability with uh, with investing as well for me of like, if I did this deal or didn't do this deal, if they succeeded or failed, which one would make me the most mad, right? If mm-hmm. I wasn't able to work with that founder and spend the next 10 years helping them on the journey, or if I was stuck on that board and, you know, and even if it worked, right? Would yeah. I have fun? Would I like working with the person? Would I be helpful? Uh, and so at the end of the day, those are some of the simple things. And it's, it's interesting, right? Like there, I have, um, I, so I invested in a company uh, called Braze, uh, now a public company, a couple billion dollar valuation. And um, this was 2016. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to work with them for uh, whatever, five years in the public markets. So and, what do they do markets. first? What do they do? Yeah, first? sorry. So, so they're marketing automation software. So picture, okay. um, picture cross-channel communication for, uh, email, SMS, MF, app notification, all of that, uh, that can power, um, retail e-commerce. Uh, originally it was mobile apps was where they started around. And so okay. it was, it was called app boy once upon a time uh, when we actually invested. And, um, the the uh, thesis that we had was that hey, mobile is a really important channel, and potentially uh, everything historically had been keyed off of a uh, email address, right? And so Exact right. Target, now Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and Responses, and Mailchimp, and whatever else is all uh, the key identifiers and email address. Well, now we're moving to this omni-channel world. And mobile requires you to pull in uh, and have an underlying schema that's much more flexible than an email address, right? Right. That's like sort of the parent-child relationship of the parent is the email address and all the attributes fall off of the child. Where in mobile, maybe you had the email address, maybe you didn't, maybe you just had a a single sign-on from Facebook or whatever, maybe you didn't, right? And so you needed to build a much more flexible schema to allow for cross-channel communication, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was the thesis. And it started with mobile apps and then slowly expanded into email. And so now they're doing a bunch of displacements of exact targets, Salesforce marketing cloud, and, you know, growing at, I don't know, 55%. uh, Yeah, I'm looking, uh, it's like close to 60% growth. um, Free cash flow neutral, or they they had a big, this last quarter, they did a big, um, uh, prepayment on AWS or, or, uh, or Mongo or whatever it, went it was. From 96 like million in revenue in 2020 to $238 million. And, uh, as of at the, at, at the end of January this year, that is, yeah, it's quite impressive. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, and, and, uh, and so like you look, I, I talked to public investors about this, and by the way, like I, I am so, uh, uh, conflicted in in this like uh so I'll, I'll give you the quick story about so we invested and now the people running the company are like some of my best friends in the world i split mm-hmm. nick's season tickets with uh the ceo and president right so mm-hmm. i am like so conflicted on this company it has such a disproportionate of <laughs> my net worth from a retail and standpoint as well as like you know whatever from a actual fund level standpoint as well and so yeah. Uh, very clear. This is not objective investment advice here. Right. Like I am, I am so personally conflicted on this one. I'm still in their Slack channel. Like uh, I, I do all this stuff with them, right? So, uh, yep. Uh, the CEO is the smartest person I've ever met in my life. Like, and that is uh, Far- uh, Dewan Faraz or Faraz Dewan? No, no. Bill Magnuson is the guy's name. Uh, okay. Smartest person I've ever met in my life. He he started going to college at 14. Uh, you know, wow. went to MIT. Was a national. Uh, uh, like debate champion. Uh, like he worked at Bridgewater for two years, started this company. 
uh, just like savant level person. And also has the, he's like a fun hang, you know, he's very relatable. He's like, uh, you know, he, he can talk about a bunch of different subjects. We, we spent too many late nights out in New York. We go to basketball games together, all that stuff. Right. And, uh, the president who lends all go to market is one of my best friends. And, uh, you know, just like a machine, just, uh, just crushes it. Right. And, uh, and so to some extent, right. In talking about this, when I talk to public and market investors about the company, I'm like, people are like, ah, well, what about an XYZ? And I'm like, I, I feel like the classic venture investor at the time when we made the investment, I knew the entire competitive landscape and why like this feature versus that feature and whatever. And now when I talk to public and market investors about it, I'm like, yeah, big market, uh, they're growing quickly. It's going to keep growing for sure. The market tailwinds are all at their back. And those guys are really fucking smart and really yep. good at what they do. And they're like, yeah. well, what about like Attentive and Clavio and MailChimp and, you know, all the exact targets push or mail, uh, Salesforce marketing clouds pushing back. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yes, I hear you. Those guys are badass and they're going to fucking crush it. Right. And it's right. one of these funny things that like I now... Where at the time when I made the investment, I was so in the weeds. And now it's just like so simple that I, I'm like, yeah, no, no, no. But these guys are going to win. They are winners. And they're yeah. going to do a great job like that. And so to some extent, I feel the tension where at the time of making an investment, I just know all this stuff. And now mm -hmm. like I'm just like, yeah, yeah, no. I, I hear all your points. And sure, competitive market, whatever, they're going to win, right? And, yeah. and it's funny to be on like, you know, both sides of the, of uh, the spectrum in this decisioning. And at the end of the day, I think uh, one of the things that I take the most comfort in is, um, if, if shit hits the fan with, uh, in the market, right. Uh, or a competitor gets insanely well-funded or, um, you know, whatever Facebook or Salesforce or Amazon or Google or whoever decides to go after this market, are you, excited to be in the trenches with this team and these people. Right. Right. And you, you know, for the most part, you have to weigh, Hey, who are the competitors? Uh, my most recent investment is this like, uh, seemingly niche vertical market. It's not publicly announced, but, okay. uh, I, I, I know that the, the competitors that coming in, it's not going to be Amazon and Google coming into this market. Right. Like yeah. I know, you have to weigh that, like the the probabilities of who the competitive set could be, hmm. uh, where you know they don't they don't need to beat Snowflake right head to head from an execution standpoint. Uh, so you need to figure out like, hey, who are the most likely competitors that are gonna you're gonna end up being with, and yeah. do you want to be on the team with these guys? And again, yeah. I have the benefit of. I make that decision. And then six years later, I kind of look up and say, all right, was that the right call or not? Right. I don't need to deal with it, that decision on a day-to-day -day basis and see the, the machinations of it, but mm -hmm. it is a pretty simple framework that works decently well or has worked decently well for me in the venture market. Do you think as you've evolved as a, as an investor, you've moved from, because what, what that sounds like with, with, with Braze and, you know, kind of let me know if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like you went from like the leaves going, going back to that tree trunk example, yep. you know, semantic tree. It sounds like you went from the leaves to the trunk and that, that, that kind of seemed to be your research process where you would start with the, the leaves. You would, you would learn all the minutia you can and then try to develop this big, you know, tree trunk philosophy as, as you've evolved, has that kind of shifted to like, let me take, like, let me see if I can understand the tree trunk 
and then let me see where I need to kind of fill in the gaps to maybe do like channel checks and just to see how that thesis is evolving over time. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Maybe maybe it should go there, uh, but for the most part, I I still go back to the leaves and all the specifics on the decisioning and making mm-hmm. sure knowing all the information. Like, I don't want to be wrong and have missed something in the diligence process, right? Yeah. And so, knowing everything I can possibly know about a market or a company or an opportunity, and then ultimately taking a step back and trying to see the trunk or the big picture of mm-hmm. like you know, you, 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 uh, envision what the future looks like and will this team have succeeded, right. Or will this company or product exist in the market? And that, um, still doing all the work because I just can't, if I miss something or I'm too simplistic in my inputs, I guess I have too much anxiety and too much, uh, uh, you know, I feel the need because we're taking a bunch of really important people's capital uh, that are yep. doing great in the world. I feel the the need and respect for what they're doing to make sure I'm not missing things. But then at the decision point, you sort of take a step back. Hey, I did all that. And do I believe in this or do I not? And yep. it's it's something that can work well. And in, in, it works well, actually, in the world where we're just paying the market price Right. And we don't have to think too hard about, hey, you know, is this actually intrinsically worth 75 million or, you know, 300 million? Right. Uh, It it works pretty well when you're just buy and hold and uh, you're making sort of a bimodal decision. Um, I, I don't know if that would work quite as well when you're thinking through like, the the intrinsic value of a company in the public markets and you know will there be a better buying opportunity that happens here in a couple months right uh and so thinking through all of that stuff for the most part with us there's usually one opportunity to buy potentially a year and we kind of only get two bites at those apples right and so it's kind of like do we want to work with this company now uh, and if we say no, we might get another swing at it, but that's kind of it, right? Versus, you know, you can wake up on the other side of the bed tomorrow and make the decision another way in the public markets, right? Mm-hmm. This is a loaded question. I usually, I mean, I ask you know, public market investors this, and the answer might be a lot different for the private markets, but how do you know? And when I say you, I mean, you know, Logan, not necessarily Redpoint as a, as a firm. Yeah, sure. How do you, how do you Logan, know like when enough information is enough to pull the trigger? And how, like, I mean, it's a super tough question, right? Because you could yeah, always no, no, no. keep well, going it's, a, it's actually, it's actually a far easier question for us than it is for public okay. market investors because we're time constrained, right? Like, if, that's true. If we don't, if we don't do anything, then, uh, th- then the, I mean, the bias at all times is like to to do nothing, right? But we have a forcing function of a shot clock of a whole bunch mm-hmm. of other people that are uh, competing to get into these companies, right? right. And so. You know, if we don't make a decision by Friday, uh, they're going to go with Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz or, you know, whoever. Right. And so we uh, we're forced into a time constraint, which actually leads to I mean, it can lead to it leads to less anxiety about like, do we have all the information and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we certainly have that because we need to. Uh, run a diligence process and sort of keep it consistent. But if the entrepreneur is telling us, hey, we need to make a decision by Friday we got to get all the information we can to make the decision by Friday. And if we don't get there, right. And we don't feel comfortable in pulling the trigger, we won't. Right. But 
it is an interesting forcing function of like, all right, here's all the information we have. The market doesn't open on Monday. Like <laughs> this is it. Uh, this is the last you know, time to get on this boat and are we getting on or not? Right. right? So in some ways, like we have a time constraint associated with it that uh, public market investors, you know, don't have. Have you guys ever had that instance where uh, let's say the shot clock's at like three and you just couldn't put up the three pointer in time and, and you were kicking yourself? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm trying, I, I don't have a, uh, a specific example that comes to mind, but um but I'm sure uh, that we've had, you know, the time expire on us where we just couldn't get there. And, you know, venture investors will often use it as an excuse to say no without saying no. Hmm. Um, for the most part, like within reason, I think most people uh, can get to it. If they really have the conviction, like they can get to a decision in the amount of time that, that you're offered. Um, right. I would say the most... The furthest extreme I've taken this to about a time constraint of wanting to be associated with the company was uh, a Tuesday first meeting. And, but we came in with like, we had done, I don't know, three months of work in advance, but the first time we met an entrepreneur was on a uh, Tuesday by Saturday, we had given a term sheet and by, uh, and by Monday, we had uh, won the deal. And it was like such a drinking from the fire hose thing. I think it's going to work out really well. Yeah. Uh, we haven't announced the investment yet, but um, it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a, uh, a shotgun wedding on both sides. And I would say there were enough like little, you know, the information is the information to some extent, like, and so you can be pretty objective from the outside in. And we had done all the reference checks on the uh, business. And so it was like, can you build a relationship with uh, someone in six days to know enough uh, about whether you want to take a five, 10 year journey with them? Yeah. And this was a fortunate thing where I had like eight different serendipitous data points around the, the uh, CEO and the founding team, uh, knew the existing investors well, um, uh, just the, the person that led the Series A, the person that led the Seed, uh, knew some of the people that he went to um, college with. And so it was just like, I could I could triangulate all these data points really quickly. I wouldn't want to yeah. do that again. Uh, my next closest was 28 days. Uh, and so- okay. So that's a big- Both gap. have actually worked. Yeah, both have worked out. Well, we'll see. The the most recent one we haven't announced yet, but the, the other one's a company called Workado uh, that's going after the application integration space. So kind of next-gen MuleSoft or like a more enterprise-y Zapier, if you will. Okay. Uh, and uh, they're they're absolutely killing it. And that was a 28-day shotgun wedding. And uh, so maybe maybe these time pressures bode well. Uh, the, the, the most recent one seems to be going well over six days. And uh, Workado is an amazing company that I think, you know, has the uh, the tiger by the tail, if you will. And so, um, yeah, may, maybe I operate well in these time constraints. I don't know. When you're when you're researching a company, um, you know, let's say like you know, there's no there's no time constraints, right? So it's kind of time agnostic. And I'm viewing kind of your time as this as this pie chart. You've got 100 percent of your time. Where do you spend your time? How do you allocate it? And what does that research process look like? So you know, for public investors, it's you can, it, it can be kind of simple. It's like, all right, I read the 10 K I read the latest investor presentation, read some Tegas calls, read some earnings transcripts and, you know, kind of model out something realistically. And, you know, it's kind of boom, 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 boom. 
what is what is what is that process or that workflow for you? And then what are like the most important, if you've got any like KPIs, like, you know, depending on what type of investment is like, I need to know this, this, and this. How awesome is Tika's, by the way? I, uh, yeah, I, I wish, I mean, it's such a library of information. I, I've gotten to know their team pretty well. And I mm-hmm. think we're featured on their website through no, uh, and I help them with their private market uh, like how they monetize in the private markets. Cause oh, I nice. think ultimately like the, the two week period of time doesn't really work for us uh, because then you're tipping off competitors and you're giving people yeah. kind of, you know, our processes are, are, you know, two to three, we're often doing work well in advance. And again, yep. back to the point of uh, not everyone can invest, uh, you know, and so two weeks works in the public markets. It didn't work in the private markets, but it's an amazing resource and we use it really well. Um, so I would say uh, one of the questions we ask ourselves in, one is just like, hey, are we intellectually interested in in this, right? And intellectual interest could come in the factor of form of, hey, uh, I just have an innate interest in this market, right? And I've spent a bunch of time in like the thin, the things that sell into the CFO suite, and it just seems like there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, I love the. Uh, we were investors in Avalara and Coupa at, at Battery, uh, investors in a company called Ramp in the corporate card space here. I, yep. I think that um, there's a company called Flowcast that I'm an investor in that is um, going after Blackline in a meaningful way. And I think there's stuff going on in corporate performance management, kind of the next gen of, uh, of Anaplan and Adaptive and all that. I think those guys left a lot of um, money on the table for what could have been in that market. So I think there's a bunch of like interesting stuff going on there. And it's funny, most people's like, uh, I feel like they stop listening when I start talking about the CFO sweep, but whatever, like I, I found this like uh, personal interest area that I think there's either a lot of greenfield mid-market opportunities that exist or, uh, and ultimately can lead to displacement at the enterprise of stuff like Coupa or, you know, Avalara or yeah. whatever, Blackline, whatever it is, right? Anaplan. And so uh, it's some of it's that just having like macro or whatever, top down kind of interest in a specific market. Um, some of it is uh, is like existing investors, right? Of, hey, who do I know around the table here? But ultimately I'm asking myself like why, there's a lot of amazing firms out there, right? And we've talked about a bunch of them, but ultimately kind of asking ourselves, why me? Like why yeah. there's so many great investors that are so uh, much smarter or more charismatic or more focused on this space than me for the most part, right? And so like what unique thing do I know or see or have about this individual situation. So first, like I am very uh, um, self-deprecating and cognizant of where I, I have shortcomings and where I, I uh, have skills. And so having that self-awareness of like why this would at all make sense for me is something that right. I, I am very cognizant of, right? If I'm, if I'm seeing a, um, you know, whatever, a $2 billion crypto opportunity and it's coming to me, like, something is wrong with that, right? Like yeah. I have partners that spend time on that or whatever, but like something there, there's, you know, the foundation of that house is going to fall when you, when you push on it. Um, and yeah. so I would say uh, that's the first question. And the second one is similar. Uh, it's kind of coming to the why me, why would I want to be a board member here for five, 10 years, right? Then the next one is, uh, is really doing that, that outside in kind of diligence work uh, similar to, to what a public market investor would do reading Tegas calls or whatever, but we have a good network and oftentimes startups sell startups, right? And so it's easy enough to talk to people who maybe were buyers or, or experts in an industry. Hey, right. I know why person failed at this opportunity five years ago. Let's talk to them about why now might be different, right? Mm-hmm. And so ultimately coming to some conclusion, uh, even before we talk to an entrepreneur about 
uh, about the market and the company itself, because for the most part, like I can, I can talk to people in the industry and get a feel for the financials. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's going to be what it's going to be. And if, if we get there, um, at that point in time, we'll have that information to make a yes or no decision when it comes time to make a decision. And so to some extent, you need to recognize, hey, is it working? And if lightning strikes or are these guys growing at 15% and, you know, at $2 million in revenue or whatever, like you need to know enough uh, to, to know what ponds to fish in. Hmm. But ultimately, like the financial profile will be something that will will cross when we get there. It's really about like, why me? And then have they found this product market fit? And so when, when looking for product market fit, what, what I'm ultimately thinking about is just consistency of um, customer or market calls where it's like, hey, uh, we had this pain point and uh, this company solved it. And then I can extrapolate, all right, well, how many other companies are there with this pain point? How many other competitors are there going after this pain point? And why yeah. should this company be the one to solve it? And it's really just like hearing the same thing. When you hear the same stuff over the course of, you know, three, five, eight, 10 calls, it's just like, okay, now I have enough data points to extrapolate. Like if it's true for someone, uh, you know, whatever, a university and it's true for a sports team and it's true for a, uh, uh, you know, General Electric and it's true for whatever, a startup, yeah. then I have enough data points to know that this market's big enough and that therefore, you know, um, uh, that there's an opportunity here. And so I would say we, we sort of look for four things. One is that like consistency of customer calls that the product market fit is there that mm -hmm. we think you can't build a big company without a big potential market. It doesn't need to be a big market today, but it does need to, uh, it does need to be, um, you know, have the potential to ride the wave to being a big market. And ultimately, I think some of the biggest companies are built around small markets that are just growing exponentially. And so mm -hmm. at the time that you invest, it seems tiny, but then they prove to be really big. Um, we also pay attention to defensible uh, IP or network effects or just accumulating advantages that exist with uh, a, a company. And so, hey, if they're able to continue to deliver on the value prop that they have today, uh, will that lead it to be more likely that each incremental customer will go to them, right? And that yeah. could be just purely from a market referential standpoint. That could be from a, a network effect in a pure way. That could be, hey, the ability to hire more engineers. Like what will lead to accumulating advantages if they're able to do that? Mm -hmm. um, and then and then world-class like, you know, management uh, or founder capability, right? It doesn't need to be um, today, but do they have the ability to get there, right? Yeah. And so I think- those are sort of the things that we're kind of checking off. And, um, you know, it's not like a yes or no type thing. All these things are on a gradient of how we grade it ultimately to make a kind of binary decision of yes or no. Mm -hmm. And then it goes back to kind of what we were discussing earlier, the kind of cone or range of potential outcomes. Yes. And um, in, in public markets, like I've, I've, kind of tried to make a point of that, especially over the last year is to not get too specific and, 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 and just think of like, Hey, if things go well, like, what could this thing be worth? If things yeah. are a base case, what could this be worth? And then if things really, you know, like if shit really hits the fan and it goes bad, like, what does that look like? And then probability weight those. And I've found that to be way more, um, both intellectually satisfying and also I think just more, more defensible because yeah, exactly. if there's, I, if there's I, I like the a fifth, yeah. Like if there's a 15% chance, um, you know, like there's like this small company I'm looking at in Australia that, 
um, is growing like crazy. It's like, you know, it's a pretty small company, but there's a slight chance that it becomes like a very, very big company. And it's like, okay, if I, if I assume like a 10% chance or a 15% chance that this thing, like absolutely takes off and goes bananas, like what's the five-year Kager? And if that's still above, you know, our 25% IRR threshold, like, like that, that matters. And just adjusting those probabilities as they happen in real time, um, to me is just way better than saying like, here's my five-year DCF and I'm going to change the margins from 40 to 35%. Like totally. And you don't want to be caught in that fooled by randomness situation, right? Yeah. Like the, the black swan event that, uh, you convince yourself that, you know, like statistically there, there needs to be a Warren Buffett and not to take anything away from Warren Buffett, but just like, you know, the probabilistic, uh, outcome of having this many people investing will, will lead to one person that ends up being the Oracle from Omaha. Right. And obviously he's a very unique person for a bunch of different reasons, but, uh, yeah, you don't want to get caught in that. Uh, it sort of goes back to the to the point earlier of like, if you're, if you think something has a 20% chance of success in our portfolio, a uh, 20% chance of being a hundred billion dollar company, like you really better do five of them. And if you go over five on that, then you could still convince yourself that like, oh gosh, I just happened to catch the, the wrong side of that. But mm -hmm. at least if you're internalizing what the risk return is uh, in some way, then it leads to uh, more intellectual discipline, I think uh, when things go right. Like I will say, when we invest in Embrace to take it back there, like I, I remember thinking that, you know, 80% chance this becomes a $300 million acquisition. And so yep. we need to get in at post hundred because then that would be a three X. Right. Yep. And, but I was like, you know, 20% chance they actually get into the displacement of, um, of email. Right. And if they do that exact target at the time was probably doing a billion in revenue. Right. And who knew, uh, responses was probably doing 600 million or whatever it was. Right. And so it's like, and they were both growing at 30% or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, if they do that, then they could get to a billion, two billion, three billion in revenue if those markets prove to be as big as we think they are. And uh, and so I, I I know, and some, the guys will give me a hard time at Braze for, for being so price disciplined about like, hey, no, not 105. I am at uh, 90. Like that is where I am. I am not moving, right? And uh and, it, you know, I probably learned my lesson on that because I almost uh, uh, lost because of that, that uh, aspect of it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was 80%. I really believe 80% chance it was a 30, $300 million outcome and that this was only the 20% of chances that this worked out, mm -hmm. but it did. And that's where they are right now. And so I can't say that I remember all of that and I'm intellectually, hopefully disciplined enough to not... Uh, Go back in time and say, I always knew this was going to happen. We saw some signs of it, but you know, this is definitely in the the outlier case of what I ever could have actually absolutely mm -hmm. hoped. So, and I wonder if that price discipline was almost like mystified by the old stories of Buffett, where he would, you know, like seize candy or something. He's like, "This is my number," just like didn't change. And they were like, "Well, what about this?" And he said, "Nope, this is my number." Um, and if you if you if you game out like those the, those cone of outcomes. Um, like you mentioned, like there's an extent, right? Like going from paying a billion to paying 2 billion, like at the end of the day, like what you're actually worried about is, okay, like, does that, does, does the difference in kind of the price I pay affect my forward return estimate or my range of forward returns enough to where it becomes not as attractive, 
right? So if I'm going from 75, like if I'm saying I'll pay 75 million and someone's like, Hey, we'll do, you know, 95, hundred million, like, is that difference in price? Is that going to go from like, Hey, like maybe I get a 35% IRR and then at one Oh five, it's a, you know, 30% or 29. Yeah. And at that point, it's, it's like, okay, if it's still above your hurdle, like, like you shouldn't really be pinching pennies because given your cone of outcomes, it's like, okay, like I'm still kind of estimating even at hundred million, like a, a, a greater than 25% IRR. And then you just kind of say like, well, okay, well, this is my number then, because if I pay over X, then the return goes from 29 to 20 to 18. And then you start getting into like, well, the opportunity cost of just buying the S and P is, you know, six, yeah, no, seven percent. Exactly. You know, the, it, it, you can lead, I think you can, trick yourself into believing there's imprecise uh, there there you can be uh um overly precise about like what things are worth and uh and so it's kind of like at the at the macro level if i were a limited partner investing in venture i would be concerned about um you know the the rising prices over the course of the last three years for sure right mm-hmm. um and i think it's on in each individual manager to be disciplined about the individual opportunities that they they look at but that said uh you're right if you get into a square or a facebook or a snowflake or a stripe or a google like it just doesn't matter and so right. i think that now we've seen that taken to its um sloppiest extreme here in the last two years where mm-hmm. people were saying, Hey, who gives a shit if it's, if it's 500 or 2 billion, right? If right. this works, it can be a hundred billion. And uh, you know, then it starts to impact each individual investment because you know, you need that to really be uh, that, you, you know, building a $10 billion company is absolutely incredible. But if you're doing around at $2 billion and, you know, you're still going to take, uh, IPO dilution and, you know, whatever, uh, uh, stock-based comp dilution and whatever you're looking at like a three X on a $10 billion company. Right. And when you see yeah. some of these companies that are, that are single digit in ARR, which has happened single digit and recurring revenue getting done at one and a half, $2 billion. It's like, sure. I, <laughs> it feels like you should be more rewarded than a three, four X right. getting right. from, you know, 8 million in recurring revenue to 800 million or whatever. Like it feels like that should be worth more than a three X. If you hundred X revenues, but only three X your investments, something about that doesn't seem right. Feels like, uh, (laughs) and especially now, I mean, again, we talked about this at the beginning, but like the, all it takes is one to price the market in the private markets. And so it's not where, where the public markets have sold down over the course of the last, whatever, three or four months, we're still sort of seeing the last person drunk at the bar at the end. And it's like, dude, you got to go home. Like it's, it's too late. And, uh, and it's like, uh, it's a, it's a funny thing where again, it's not consensus based. If there's still one person at the bar that, that, uh, is hanging around, like the bar is still open. And so that's still sort of where we are right now. And we're getting, we're getting closer to people. I think we're down probably, I would guess series C and D stage investments are probably down 20, 30% uh, in mass, but you're still seeing some of those absolute premium companies getting mm-hmm. priced at what they would have been priced at at December. Right. Cause yeah. the entrepreneurs anchored to that price. And, you know, it, again, there's only going to be one or two opportunities to invest at all. And so some people are saying, Hey, this could be that generational business. Who cares if it's, 
super overpriced, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think can be sloppy, but you also risk missing out on the stripes and the, and the GitHubs and the slacks and all the companies that were considered crazy prices at the time that they were done, but proved Mm -hmm. to be pretty generational companies. Yeah. And kind of speaking of shifts, I want to, I want to wrap up with this idea of building an investment media company, which is something that Redpoint has really, really made a concerted effort in doing. Um, And, you know, I went in in, in kind of prep for this podcast. I went back to your interview with Harry uh, on 20 VC and uh, you know, he basically asked the the difference between, you know, having a personal brand as Logan Bartlett and then having, you know, a red, red point ventures brand. And you even, you even alluded to it, you know, a little bit where it's like, you know, how much does the name in front of the at symbol matter versus the name at the end of the at symbol matter. Um, And I want to just kind of get your thoughts on the maybe investment business as a whole, where if we roll the tape out five to 10 years, like, do you think every investment firm, whether it's VC or hedge fund or something like that, like needs to have some sort of media arm. And then if that's true, like at what point does um, producing media actually like stop adding value where you just should probably focus on, you know, I think I put in the notes, like, you know, just rolling up your sleeves and doing the grunt. Totally. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, so I think that interview with Harry, whenever it was like six years ago, uh, the only other uh, podcast I've done um, outside of my own, uh, like focused on me at all um, in the industry, uh, I think it's, I haven't gone back and listened to it, but I think like all the stuff I've been thinking about in the last two years, we're definitely ruminating then, right? Of like, hey, gosh, there was this, there was this world of celebrity venture investor that was happening, right? And uh and I was seeing people that had generational returns from an investor standpoint getting beaten by people that had amazing blogs or Twitter presences. And this was 2015 or 2016. And, uh, and so I became uh, super paranoid of like, where would I exist on the, in this world of uh, the move from broadcast television to cable television to TikTok or streaming wars uh, in the hyper-personalization that entrepreneurs were seeking? Where would I exist on that? And so uh, that was a concerted, this has been, I have a fairly public uh, Twitter presence that sort of happened over the course of the last two and a half years. And uh, this was something that was always kind of ruminating. And I wanted to find something authentic to me that uh, differentiated myself or helped me stand out. And and so to some extent, it's a balance between, uh, you're right, like, my job, I inherited the Redpoint brand in a meaningful way and 20 years of history associated with uh, all the investments they made and all the success that they had. And, uh, and I think that, um, I think that my job here is both to continue to cut through the noise. And if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing, right? If you're not thought of for anything by entrepreneurs, you're not going to be thought of at all. Mm-hmm. And so for me personally to be thought of, or for Redpoint personally to be thought of, or Redpoint as a brand to be thought of for something, right? Mm-hmm. And I think to some extent we live in this world, and this is a little bit of a uh, you know controversial analogy that I use, but it's like, uh, we don't live in a ranked choice, uh, uh, primary process world in venture capital. We live in a, uh, we live in the, you know, it's better to be Donald Trump than it is to be Jeb Bush. It's better to be deeply appealing to a narrow subset than it is broadly, but thinly appealing. And so if you can cut through the noise in any way, shape or form, Mm -hmm. and at least be deeply appealing to some subset of the population, like, uh, of entrepreneurs, that wins the day. Like being the generalist, likable enough person, that actually worked for a long time in venture. But like now you need more 
sizzled behind what it is you're doing. And so I think my job now is both for me to cut through the noise at a personal level, but also to make sure anyone else that inherits that at redpoint.com email address. Uh, it means we live in this like this constantly sliding world where uh, it's getting more and more competitive and it's harder and harder to differentiate and it's, it's, you know, difficult to cut through the noise. And so I need to make sure that at least anyone that comes after me inherits as much value from at redpoint.com as I did. Right. And so my job for us, we need to keep running forward just to stand in place. Right. And so Mm -hmm. now the focus on media and all of that stuff is uh, I think, I think there's, uh, we're testing a lot of different stuff and maybe some's going to work and some's not. And uh, I think that, I I don't think this is necessary for everyone. Like I I think one in the public markets, like your ability, maybe IPO allocation proves to be something of a beauty contest, but ultimately a few months later, like you can buy at the same price as everyone else. So one, I don't think public market investors need to need this in the same way we do, but Mm -hmm. we're trying, our job is mix of hedge fund analyst and CAA agent. Right. And so we need to be able to have stuff that differentiates us versus everyone else. Right. Right. And that have us thought of, you need to, you need to be at the table. Right. And then you can roll up your sleeves and then your entrepreneurs can call in and give references for you. And then you can show off your competency in the sector. But if you're not having that conversation, you're not going to be afforded the opportunity to make that sales pitch. And so I think this is something that really diverges from what uh, the public market people need to think about and what we need to think about because we're constantly in a beauty contest, right? And Mm -hmm. it's, uh, I compare it, I I follow college football quite a bit and um, it's similar to like college football recruiting where you know, at the end of the day, just because you offered someone first uh, and you're whatever, a, a, uh, a Mac school, if Alabama or Tennessee or Georgia or whoever it is, you have comes no calling, chance. <laughs> you have no chance. Right. And so it's like you need to. And now we live in the NIL world where, you know, payers are players are actually getting paid. And so now it's even more similar to our world where, yeah. hey, there's a market price for a player out there. And it doesn't matter if you're, um, you know, Toledo and you're going to offer the kid a million bucks because all your boosters came together. Uh, you know, he might he might say, hey, I'm still going to go to Alabama because, you know, I care about all the other stuff. And I think that's still true in our world. And there's a ultimately most of these companies are going to fail. And so the entrepreneurs are picking things beyond price. And they're not walking away. If you're selling your house, you're mostly going to walk away from it and give it to the highest bidder. But you're, it's like inviting someone into your Airbnb in the private markets, right? It's like inviting, you know, hey, I'm staying in this house and this, who do I want in that room over there? And if ultimately that person's going to be living with you, you're probably going to take other stuff into consideration. And so I think this is probably unique to the private markets that, you know, yeah. uh, doesn't need to exist in the public markets. And I also think most venture firms uh, are either going to die because they don't evolve or don't need this because they have something else. Like they, mm-hmm. they have all their, all their LPs or healthcare or systems or all their, you know, they only do FinTech or they're only CEOs. And so they have some other way to rise above the noise and spike. And this is one thing we're sort of testing to see, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe we, we can figure it out. And I assume there's also a struggle of remaining authentic while also trying to cut through the noise, right? Because just kind of using the mental model of reality TV, like when a camera is on somebody and they know it's for entertainment value, like you will act different 
um, to some degree, right? Like that, like you, you, you know, your actions and kind of what you say is not just, you know, here with you and the people around you, it's going to an audience. And so like, I, I can, I can almost sense like maybe there comes a time where it's like, how do I remain like authentic to myself? And it sounds kind of heady and whatnot, but like, I mean, honestly, like how much of this am I just kind of portraying so I can get more deals versus like making sure that I stay who I am and not really trying to create a, you know, a personality just to create a personality. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I struggle, and this is one of the reasons, you know, to take take it back to the beginning here, why uh, I have held off mostly on doing podcasts until I ultimately sort of started my own and and and, and all of that is because yeah. I I had a something of a shtick on Twitter that um, that worked well. And it's like kind of irreverent inside baseball, making fun of the venture ecosystem, uh, you know, wh- whatever you want to call it. And that worked very well. But I recognized that one, whenever I deviate from that and like give some market analysis or something, people are like, this is, this wasn't what we signed up for. Like I came here for self-derogatory memes about the VC Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, in old uh, wedding crashers, it's like, make me a bicycle clown. Like all my replies are all like, you know, people telling me to, uh, to do what they, they uh, came there for. Um, And that's, that's fine. And that's one medium and one form factor. And I think Twitter is a uniquely bad product at, uh, you know, it forces everything everyone, you don't follow the interests, you follow the individual. And so like, I can't deviate too much from what people signed up for because the algorithm's so bad, it force feeds everyone, you know, everything right. Uh, for Mm -hmm. better and for worse, but, um, there's a much more, I I can't be anything when I'm sitting across the table from an entrepreneur or sitting across the table from, you know, you here doing this, I I can't keep the shtick up of just like jokes all the time and, 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 and all that. And so, um, figuring out, how you represent yourself in that world. And ultimately Mm -hmm. what I've sort of come back to is like, you need to just be authentic to who you are and what you believe. And if you're over a long enough period of time, you might be able to do one interview, two interviews, three interviews in some uh, Colbert, Stephen Colbert-ish persona, right? Which is what I'll sometimes like draw. My Twitter persona is sort of like a Stephen Colbert of venture industry, right? But I can't do that sitting across the table from you. And so there's an authenticity to form factor, actually looking at someone and hearing someone's intonation and all that. And so ultimately I think you have to do make, you can get by in certain form factors or certain channels uh, being shtickish in some way. And Twitter is probably the one that most lends itself because there's no intonation, there's no video, there's no whatever. Um, but ultimately it catches up to you. Right. And so you can't do that over a long enough period of time. I, I, I don't have a good enough memory to remember, uh, uh, what I said uh, in general. And so I, uh, I find that I just kind of need to tell the truth because I can't keep lies straight in my head at all. I learned yeah. this when I, from a young age of like, I just won't remember a lie if I tell it. And so yeah. like, I need to tell the truth if only because, I'll get caught eventually, right? Because I'll remember, (laughs) forget that I said X, Y, Z thing to Y person, right? And so at the end of the day, you sort of need to be authentic uh, in general. And I think entrepreneurs appreciate that. Once upon a time, I think there was kind of this like, uh, veneer that existed and, uh, and you wanted to present yourself with gravitas and heft and, you know, kind of cerebral, uh, white shoe, uh, silver spoon kind of like, yep. uh, made man adventure. And I actually think for the most part, entrepreneurs, like in talking about where, 
what keeps me up at night, where my anxieties are, what I'm thinking about, struggles that I have, all that stuff with entrepreneurs ultimately humanizes and makes me more relatable. And I think, yeah. I don't know, not everyone needs to do that, but I found that to be a good product for me. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that was, I mean, that was very insightful because, you know, it's something that if you, if you become successful, whether, you know, as a personal brand or as, as a, as a investment firm, like these are questions that you have to ask to make sure that you're totally. you know, kind of yeah, staying, I staying found on, on Twitter, like, uh, what people sign up for is what they stay for. Right. And so if you're going to only do memes or if you're going to only do threads, or if you're going to only do, um, you know, broad-based like fortune cookie platitudes, uh, just be aware that like you're, you're, you know, <laughs> the, the bed you make is the one you'll keep. Right. And so just be very cognizant while, while the dopamine hit of growing your follower base and all that stuff, if you get there in a certain way, like that's what they're going to keep around, stay around yeah. for. And so you got to be careful. And I think the th same is true of a brand in general. The, the thread game is just killing me, especially as we come up to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, like the amount of yeah. thread I've seen from people that are like, I've read every single Warren Buffett letter since 1965. Here are my top 10 lessons. And it's like, I've seen 30 of those and they're all the yeah, same. Totally. <laughs> and they totally. all have I mean, 8,000 likes. <laughs> that's the thing is honestly, it's, it's kind of, uh, it, people do it cause it works and it, it's almost Twitter's fault as much as, uh, whatever, like uh, clearly there's some human nature that this appeals to for people of deriving insight. And mm -hmm. I, I assume, I hope it's the unwashed masses that it appeals to and not the like sophisticated, uh, folks, but I, <laughs> I, I don't know, uh, clearly it works. Right. And yep. I've, I found that's the way that, um, for whatever reason, the most consistently developed followers, if you, if you put it in thread form and push insights out, people seem to like it. I don't, it sounds like you don't, but um, no. yeah, it seems like a good way to grow your, grow your base. And so, yeah, if, if, if that's what you want, if what you want is followers, uh, then it seems like the simplest way to do it. Um, not for me, but my kind of putting a, putting a wrap on, on, on the Twitter thing, my, my most popular tweet ever so far was a venture capital meme and it was a picture of um two ships that were trying to put out a fire like an oil rig fire and um one was like right next to it actually putting out the fire and then another one was like way off in the distance like had this little spray gun and like tried to shoot and like was literally like not even close to hitting the fire and i i just like sent that image and put, you know, like VCs adding value. And I oh, had an yeah, arrow yeah. to the yeah, little, yeah. to the, to the little ship. And like, I mean, people, people eat that up. Um, but you see, yeah. Memes are another thing, you know, I've leaned into it at different times and, uh, it certainly like during COVID was a big part of my, uh, my thing, but, um, yeah, I, uh, it, it's, you know, memes are another thing that I think people it, it appeal to people as well. So. Yeah. And speaking of Twitter, we'll kind of wrap up here. Um, I know you're, you know, you've got a, you're almost at 50,000 followers. So congrats on that, but where can people go to find you on Twitter and then any other links? Yeah. Uh, so Logan Bartlett, uh, is, uh, or at Logan Bartlett, just one word is my Twitter. And then, uh, I do, as we alluded to, I do have a podcast. Um, it's, it's called, I think you can just search and Spotify my name, uh, or, or Apple podcasts or whatever, but three cartoon avatars is the, uh, the name of it. Um, and the website is three, the, uh, 
the word uh, cartoonavatars.com. Um, you can go there and that'll give you all the links. We've, uh, you know, we have YouTube, we have whatever, everything there. And so I'll, I'll, it's a weekly thing, sort of uh, musing about the, um, the machinations and the, the venture kind of tech world uh, with, uh, with two other guys. And it's been, it's been a fun, um, fun little pet project. So. Awesome. And then last question I ask everybody, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Abraham Lincoln would be passed uh, for sure, just one. because um, I think, you know, uh, as a human and what he was able to accomplish was uh, was just um, remarkable. And the decisions he had to make in in times of peril were, uh, was really impressive. And then uh, I guess I'll do a present as well. I, I'm just fascinated by not not because I, I have the adulation of him like so many people do. I mean, I have a ton of respect, but Elon Musk is like, I think that would be just a a fascinating conversation to have, you know, he's very online as, as I am. And so talking to him about Twitter as a form factor, talking to him about Twitter as a, as a business, talking to him about Tesla and SpaceX, which are companies that I never would fund, uh, you know, and, uh, but have proven to be like phenomenally successful, uh, endeavors. Yeah. And so I, I think he would be the, not because I, I am some Elon fanboy, but just cause I'm so, fascinated by him he would be the uh the person i would enjoy to sit with today it'd be sweet to get both of them at the same table yes to get lincoln Two very and different Musk. people i would say <laughs> yeah I, I uh maybe one day maybe uh maybe we can figure out yeah if if we keep doing our job and investing in cool stuff uh maybe that that's possible one day in the future that is the goal like that's our north yeah. star to get musk and lincoln at the same table well yeah exactly logan this has been sweet man um it's been a long time coming and I think it, 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 it totally lived up to um, everything I wanted it to be. And I, I, I learned a ton from, from chatting with you and I know others are going to learn a lot as well. Um, I wish you the best of luck at Redpoint and, and kind of everything you, you know, you're, you guys are doing over there. Um, keep picking great companies and have fun at the uh, Miami tech week. Yeah, exactly. It's a, you know, it's a pretty simple job when you boil it all down to uh, partying at Miami tech week and picking great companies, but yeah, yeah. no, if I, I will try to keep doing both. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.